We are talking today about investments. We're talking about gain and loss. Paul's going to ask us to take a look at our spiritual portfolio, if you will. And I thank Tim for getting us started into chapter 3 last week as we moved, uh, turned the corner from chapter 2 to chapter 3. We really looked at, what he asked us to look at was where we place our confidence or where we maybe misplace our confidence. We misplace our confidence in our heritage and sometimes our religious activity. And if we place our confidence in those things, we're going to come up short in the end, in the, in the true end. When we start investing in the temporal, when in matters of eternity, we're going to be in wanting in the end. And so let me just read it for you. I'm not going to ask you to stand just yet, but let me just read a reminder as a context and a setup for where we'll be today. Philippians uh, 3, 3 through 7, he says, Put no confidence in the flesh, though I may myself have reason for such confidence. If someone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. Circumcised, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in the regard of the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on said law, faultless. But whatever your gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I was reading around, I was doing some studying, and I found this commentary that MacArthur had commented on this section specifically. He says, look, I've accumulated a lot of things. Going back to verse 4, he says, if anybody should have confidence in the flesh, I could, speaking of Paul. And he goes, and then Paul says, for all these years, my salvation has been built on my ritual, my race, my rank, my tradition, my religions, my sincerity, and my works. And then I met Christ. And then I met Christ, and I saw that it was all liability. It was all loss. And I gladly gave it up for the sake of Christ, for the sake of Jesus. It's so basic, but that day on the Damascus Road, the living Christ broke through an incredible blindness that was in the Saul of Tarsus, who was a Pharisee, who was a legalist, who was a works-based righteousness worker, and he shattered his confidence in all his religious accomplishments. And the root of self-confidence was forever plucked from his heart as he was made alive in Christ. As Jesus was made known to him, he sold all to gain Christ. You see, one thing we're going to look at in a moment, one thing you won't see in the the conversion experience of Saul to Paul is that actual name change. When God confronts Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road in chapter 9 of of Acts, he does not change his name. Paul changes his own name later. You see, Saul was a kingly name. Saul was the name of the first king of Israel, and so his Pharisee parents gave him this name because he was the Hebrew to the Hebrews. He stood out and would rise above his contemporaries, and he accomplished everything that was available to him. His mentor was the head of the Sanhedrin. He was waiting for a seat at what we would know, know as like the Supreme Court. He was it among all his contemporaries. And he said, in meeting Jesus, this is why when he writes things like this, it's, it's crazy, like, to live as Christ, to die as gain. I would give all that up again for one day with Jesus here in chains. What was it about Jesus that changed a man so much that he would take his name and no longer be called a Hebrew name, Saul, and kingly, but he would take a Latin name? Because he believed so much in his call to the Gentiles and how Jesus had set him apart and called him out that he would take a Latin name, a name that means small and humble, and call himself Paul because even though I was all these things, I am nothing 
apart from him. And in him my sole focus and my sole affection is found. And I count everything else as loss. All the things that you would count as gain to me, I count as loss. Apart from knowing him. Paul says, this stuff that I accomplished was the wrong investment. And so, uh, he has this concept, he has an understanding in John 15, where it says, if you align yourself with me, the world will hate you, because it first hated me. Paul understands that, that he was not of the world any longer, that he was plucked out of the world and given an eternal status with the Lord and an eternal calling for while he was on the earth to be that apostle to the Gentiles. He also understood that when he said yes to Jesus, he was saying no to everything else. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, um, I do a lot of marriages. I, I, I get fortunate to meet with a lot of couples for premarital counseling. And one of the things I tell couples is this. When they come here to this altar and they, they go through the, the sessions with me and they finally meet me here, I know that we have witnesses, but here's the thing. It's not about anyone out here. They're all observing it's about you and me and the Lord. And you're making a promise. You're making a promise to one person. And let me ask you this. When you stand up and you say your yes, are you excited about what you get in that yes? They always look at me and say, yeah, I am. I've had, uh, I was one of them. I've been a husband. I've been that groom that wept because of what we get. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Like the benefit of what we get. But I also look at that couple and I tell them, here's what you are saying in your yes. In your yes to this individual, this man, this woman, you are also saying no to everyone else. There is great gain, but you need to understand that it's coming at loss. There's a loss that comes with this. And so that's what Paul's trying to remind us as we turn the corner even further and go from verses 7 to 11 in chapter 3 of Philippians. So I will ask you to stand as we read this and we get into the issue of loss and gain from Paul's perspective as we invest in our spiritual portfolio. Verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. Your text may say rubbish or dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which is in him. Faith, or, sorry, which is in Faith in Christ, the righteous that comes from God on the basis of said faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from said dead. Father, I, I, just, I pray that this morning as we look at your text, we would not misconstrue who it is who speaks and that with clarity and concision, you would speak directly to our heart and mind and perform surgery if need be by the power of your spirit, removing those things that stand in the way of you and may compete with your being the sole object of our affection in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's talk about gain. Let's talk about what we gain in saying yes to Jesus. Paul uses a word here. He uses the word knowing. He says, that I consider everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom 
I, I for, I, whose sake I have lost all things. That word knowing comes from gnosis in the Greek, but the meaning is more than just having an intellectual prowess. It's more than just having a mental capacity of who Jesus is. Gnosis would stay in that vein. The word that he uses here is the Greek word, it's from genosko. Genosko, what that means is to be, to know experimentally, to know experientially, to know personally, or to know at a level of personal involvement with. This would, this would be appropriate given his Hebrew lineage. In Genesis, it says that Adam knew his wife Eve experientially. We understand what that means. I don't have to go in unpacking that further. But it says he yadah her, that he know her at the core of who he was inside and out as they became one flesh. He's talking in these terms, that we experience God at a level that is more than just a mental, a, a mental proposition. Like, yes, I understand who the Bible says Jesus to be. And I understand what the, the church says about who Jesus is. I, I have a mental capacity. I understand what your answer, church or Bible, is going to be on the person of Jesus. I understand that. Okay? What Paul's saying is that would be propositional. This is far more than propositional. What he's talking about is having a knowledge that carries a weight of living position. That we, not propositional, but positional place of uh, attribute in your life. So what this means is he's saying that it becomes so ingested, it'd be more than just mental, and it becomes something that I exercise at the core of who I am, that it changes my entire worldview, and everything that comes forth from me is dictated by this worldview, by this truth. So my actions, my values, everything that comes forth from me, my whole position in the world has changed. This is what he's saying. I am different. So Saul of Tarsus says, I'm going to change my name to Paul because I'm small, I'm humble. Though I was these things in Corinthians when he writes of himself, he says it in, right here in uh, Philippians, if anyone has the ability to place confidence in themselves, I'm more so. Confidence in flesh, I can do that. No one can really compare to me. If you compare me to other people, I'm going to come out on top. However, in the end, I won't be compared to other people. I'll be compared to Jesus. And in that comparison, in Corinthians, he says, I'm nothing more than a busboy. In Corinthians, he says, I'm nothing more, I'm nothing more than an under rower. To a massive ship, I'm the slave. I'm, I live in the slave quarters. I'm underneath here. I am nothing apart from him. It is more than simply doing the religious thing and reciting religious sayings. He is saying, it has changed my entire perspective on things and I no longer have a big head about things, but humbly I'm grateful that I'm able to be alive in Christ and dead to my old way of living. I identify with Jesus in such a way that it changes me. We have a tendency to flip the script on this far off, and I'll give you an example. In our regular practice, Natural, generally speaking, okay? Some of you, I'm going to talk to the men if it's okay. Ladies, let you off the hook for a second. Okay, guys, some of you drive around and you have like national champion stickers on your car, okay? And some of you may have colors of a certain school hanging in your closet, okay? Now, let me, let's be honest. Let me just throw this out. How many of you root for a school that you were raised to root for? Just hands up. Okay, hands up, nice and higher. Higher, higher, there you go. Okay, so talking, you're not alone. 
Okay, you in fact may have not gone to that school or played for that team. I can look at you and tell you never put a helmet on. Okay? All right? So, but here's, here's the thing. I want to I be clear. When we talk about that team, you don't say they're going to the national championship. We say we're going to the national championship. And isn't it funny that we identify, and I'm in, this, I'm in this boat because I do the same thing. My, I have an orange and blue closet. I, I do it. But isn't it funny that we identify more with a school that we, in fact, didn't attend for a team that we didn't, in fact, play for in a sport that we didn't play at that level And we identify more with that team and people know us as a fan of said team than we do identifying with the creator of the universe. The Bible says the lover of our soul, the one who created us in his image, it is more reflected in our lives with this fan gene that we have a tendency to have. It's more reflected in our lives that we are a Tennessee fan, a Georgia fan, a Florida fan, a Titan fan than we are a Jesus follower. Hello? (laughs) And here's the thing. Most of us are okay with it. That's the scary part. Most of us are okay with it because it's just what we've always done. I was raised to root for a certain team, and I've always done that, and so I'm okay being identified in in that way. Until you read these words and you go, that's a problem. I shouldn't be more identified with a team of a sport than I am with the one who gave his life that I might live, that took my unrighteousness on himself, placed his righteousness on me, that I might be made right with God. And Paul's saying this is far more important. He's saying it's not okay to simply do things the way that you've always done them. It may not be safe to say that in the church, but let me say that again in the church. Away from fandom. It may be wrong to just do things the way you've always done them. Just because you were raised doing them a certain way does not make it right. The matter at hand is this, John 1, 35 through 39. It says this, the next day John the Baptist was here with his two disciples and he, he saw Jesus passing by. He looked and said, look, the Lamb of God. When his two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus, turning around. Jesus saw them following and said, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, and I love how it adds this in the the translation, which means teacher, because he understands the audience he's talking to is not all Hebrew. Where are you staying? Which is a curious response. Don't have time to get into that day. Maybe another sermon, but that's a weird response. Where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. Some translations say of what Jesus said there, what do you want? Yours might read, what are you after? What are you seeking? As if to say, what are you looking for? Or what will finally fulfill you and make you content? Here's what I got to say. We cannot say that we identify with Jesus if our responses in life have no contentment. Let me say it again. We cannot say that we identify with Jesus if our responses to our circumstances in life changing have no or little contentment. How many of you are easily shaken? Just be honest. I'm I'm like you. Anyone else struggle with anxiety? 
and we'll struggle with uh, worry. What's the worst thing you tell a worrier? Don't worry. <laughs> right? It's like, oh, I don't know why I didn't figure that out for myself. Just turn that off. We have to make the willing choice. We have to choose and realize what we are choosing in Jesus. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10 say this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich, listen to this, fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith, and they have pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul's talking about our investment here, and so it is important for him when he talks to his understudy, Timothy, the young pastor of the church at Ephesus, the New York of their day, the most important church of this time. He says, don't make the mistake of making this about money when you get into it. Don't make the mistake of making the switch. And those people around you who seem astute and they're, they're important, they're going to start to shift your attention towards your accomplishments and your heritage, and they're going to lead you to try to make your investment about about money and temporal things. He says, in the end, not do that. We are constantly choosing to gain Jesus and lose all else. People who are wise and are trusted can even mislead you. We can easy, easily and often get distracted from the reality of what we need to be after by what the world is selling. It's always easy to hear from the world. How many of you like to go talk to your friends when you're struggling with something? And how many of you have ever had God give you clear direction, but you didn't like what God said, so you go to someone else and go, I, I'm not sure what to do about this. I'm confused. <laughs> God already told you, but you go to them because you want to hear if they agree with you, right? There's a Listen, there's a difference between confusion and you just not accepting something. There's a truth to you being confused, but God's not the author of confusion. And then you just not accepting what God has said. But I want you to be assured, the world's message to you will always play to your own lack of contentment and your own insatiable desire for more. So if you feel discontented, they'll make it seem louder. People can identify. In Jesus, we find contentment, we find peace, we find true salvation from a life herein that is broken and in want, where we, listen, I, I got to say this, and I'm, I know I'm, it's tough, but here it is. In Jesus, we find a place of contentment. But right now, many of us are slaves to our own schedule and our own insatiable selfish desires. There has to be the switch that Paul's talking about. And Paul's the one who changed his own name. We have to make the conscious decision to switch for ourselves because many of us are driven more by our insatiable desires and we are slave to our own schedules. I just have to do this, I gotta do this, I'm so busy, I got this. We, we do not govern our own lives. We are governed by others' demands and the world will continue to push you to the point where you're so distracted, Jesus is an afterthought. And you can show up here and say, Jesus, but you're just him, piggybacking him onto your current life. And here's the thing, you expect him to bless that. This is what Paul is saying. He's adamant about us losing our former life and his former life being lost. I want to look at, again, verses 3 
5 through 9. It says, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Not a person in here can say that resume. He accomplished more than any one of us. We can't say that, that same resume, but here's what he says. There's a massive but as you get into verse 7. It says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them garbage. I want to look. Let me, just, let me just read from Acts 9 really quickly. Paul's conversion experience. You've probably heard it before. Let me just read it. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He was going to Damascus to take and bind Ananias and all those who were there of the way with letters from the Sanhedrin, from Jerusalem. And here's the cool thing about Paul's response, or Saul of Tarsus' response to the Lord. Why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul responded. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Master? I've never been confronted by anyone so polar, so different, that I would call you Master at first blush. He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. When we say yes to Jesus, we say no to everything else. It's like we're trusting Matthew 6, that we seek ye first the kingdom, and everything else will be added. It's as if we trust the picture that, that Paul gives us in Ephesians 5 where he likens how a husband should respond to a wife. And then he says this, the great mystery of that is this is actually how the church responds to its bridegroom, Jesus. When we, listen, I'm going to say a statement that I think we all need to make note of. I'm going to go back to that marriage picture for a second. When we say yes to intimacy with one man, we say no to intimacy with any other. Let me ask you this. How many, how many people do you get to have intimacy with after standing at the altar and making a promise to someone else? How many people do you get to have intimacy with? One. How many do you forsake? All. What was the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with? Yeah, there you go. I just needed all. We're good. Glad you know that. Here's the thing, trying to put these pieces together. When we said yes to, the Je to Jesus at the altar, we said no to everyone else. And you cannot be my disciple unless you hate your father, mother. Reading Luke 14, here it is. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. For whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one who wants to build a tower, won't you? Suppose one who wants to build a tower, you won't first down and estimate the cost and see if you have enough money to complete it before you begin. He's saying, imagine your investment. Imagine what you are losing by saying yes here. And can you, can you endure to the end? Can you do it? And he uses the example of family because it's so important. Here's the thing. 
I really believe when God instituted family, first institution ever instituted in the Bible, family was important. We weren't intended to do this alone. We were intended to worship him together. When we were ushered into the kingdom, we were ushered into what? God's family. But here's the thing. In a broken world, that can become really uh, hairy scary. Things get a little befuddled. And we can have a tendency to put our family above even God. How many of you have ever made an idol of your kids? I mean, like, I'll follow God as long as he's blessing my kids. And here's what he's saying. Your love and devotion to me has to so compare to your love for your family, your closest family members, it must seem like hatred. And you say, well, Justin, I don't get it. What are you talking about? I thought, the, I thought God wanted me to be with my family forever and be awesome. No, God wants you to put your family time on the altar because it keeps getting in the way of your time with him. And here's the thing, family time is great. I love it, it's awesome. But when it starts to compete with your devotion to Jesus, it has now become an idol and it now becomes a problem. Well, I don't, I don't get it. Aren't we supposed to just be together forever? No, because you're in a sinful world. You can have a tendency to love your spouse or your kids or even your parents more so than you do devote your heart and attention to your Savior. You're in a tainted place. And a lot of times we will take that temporal fulfillment, you know, that vacation with the kids and the, where we went to Disney or whatever. And, I, man, and trust me, I love it. I love making memories. It's awesome. But we'll take that and we'll cheapen what God desires for us. It's like we have an invitation to have dinner with the, the creator of the universe and we keep pushing him off for a dentist appointment. You hear me? Your love for your family is very important, but not at the expense of Jesus, whom you are to love more and with all. We must consider the cost and we must consider the loss here. What Paul lists in Philippians 3 as he recites his resume, Paul didn't say that he left those things that are good to choose something in Jesus that was better. See, we have a tendency to interpret them as good because of the way we view them, through the lens that we see them in. What he says is something entirely different. He's implying something different. He doesn't intend that they are good. He intends that these things were what he was taught are his salvation. So that means they're in the way of the truth of knowing Jesus and true salvation. So he calls them bad. He says they're garbage. In fact, he uses a stronger word. In the original language, it's not garbage like you throw it out like rubbish. It is synonymous with sewage, human excrement, waste. He is saying that it is more gross than that. It is an affront. It is a, a waste of time, such a loss that you place your time and investment in that. He says these weren't good things. They were bad. He calls them loss. He calls them a waste because they were in the way. Why? Because they were robbing him of truth when he was practicing them. We live in a region that is over-churched and under-gospeled. I need us to hear the truth there. And we live in a place where this practice has just become our routine and we've just always done it. And many of us are missing 
Jesus because we are misplacing our confidence in what we do or our heritage or we are placing our investment in the time that we've served and we are placing our investment in the things around us like our family that we call good. And he says, your love for me needs to comparatively be like hatred in your love for them. There needs to be a clear distance and separation. Your affection for me is soul. I am God and I will not compete. And when your name is I am, here's the thing, you can say that. I think it's okay when your name is God to be the most self-centered person in the room. I think that when your name is God and I am, and the creator of the living universe, creating every single person here in his image, I think it's okay if he created every one of us to worship him. I think that's okay. The problem is, at the fall of man, we competed for his throne, and we had a problem with that. Surely you won't die. I mean, what kind of God is going to withhold from you? You can have all of this, millions of trees, a vast forest, eat of any of it. There's no poison in the world. Have a great time. Enjoy it. Just stay away from the one thing that's harmful for you. What could we not stop thinking about? Because we don't want to be told what to do, what not to do. You look at all the vastness he gives us, and we, in our minds, our broken minds, we call that restraint. He just wanted us to, to enjoy life in a loving boundary. But we had to challenge him for his throne. And Paul says this, my sole devotion to Judaism gave me a basis for my salvation. That's what I was holding to. I was making them priority. And here's what it was doing to me. As I made my religion, my heritage, my practice, as I made that my aim, I was missing out on knowing Jesus and the freedom that comes by soul devotion to him. Judaism taught me to believe that my salvation was tied to a race, to a rank, to a religion or religious activity. Yet when I gained true knowledge of Christ on the Damascus Road, I found true salvation, internal peace, true fulfillment, finally a purpose. I found truth, and that truth was the person of Jesus. That was the first time he'd heard that. No heritage, ritual, or works could offer me eternal security, salvation, peace, like, like everything I'd been investing in temporally. Nothing could fix that because they were made man-made, they were of the world, and they, like this world, are passing away. Philippians 3.10, he says this, I want to know Christ and, yes, know the power of his resurrection, that thing that raised him from the dead and the participation of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Speaking of this world and in the likeness of his death, listen to this. <laughs> I want you to think about the Savior that we say we serve, the one who went on the cross, took our unrighteousness upon himself and placed his righteousness on us, making a holy and eternal exchange. Jesus stepped into this world in the humblest of fashion to walk amongst the humblest of people to take a humble state himself. But what he left was a throne that beckoned the eternal praise of angels. Hello? What he did in stepping out of heaven and leaving his throne to come here so that you and I could have life was he walked away from the eternal praise of angels who could not even look upon his glory to take the humblest of fashion 
the humblest of position in the humblest of entrances and die the most heinous of deaths so that you and I might be his. Matthew 16. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They must be killed on the third day and raised back to life. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him and said, Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And this is only on the heels of Jesus being professed as Messiah by Peter himself. Jesus turned to Peter and he says this, Get behind me, Satan. After the very profession, you're the Messiah, the one we've waited on. Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have the mind that, uh, with the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is, how many of you have a friend that will do this for you? This is what it means to have iron sharpen iron. Then Jesus said to disciples, whoever wants to be a disciple must deny himself, take up the cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. What good will it do for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? What can anyone have in exchange for his soul? The suffering that we identify with in Jesus is loss. The loss of our own agendas and the dying to this world and all its detractors. We have to say, I'm no longer going to be selfish and I'm no longer going to ask people to worship me. I'm going to put my agenda aside in order to gain him his gift of free salvation, to trust that my unrighteousness was put on him and his righteousness in turn put on me. I'm going to gain him my original intent, my purpose, my peace, eternity, and the unconditional love that came with all of it. This morning, we're about to move to a time of response, and in that response, we are going to have a time of communion as a corporate body. We recognize him today at his table at a moment we will take that supper together. Before we do that, I wanna, I'm going to ask the band to come back and I'm going to leave us with a question that I want us to contemplate and I'm going to say this altar is open and there'll be prayer partners available to as we each respond to this very question about gain and loss. See, no one else can answer this question for you. And here's the question. Jesus forsook all for me, for you. Have I forsaken all for him? Have his beloved bride, his child, his bondservant, am I truly his? And is he everything that I live for? Father, today as we come to a time of response to your word, I pray that you'd bring to mind all the places that compete in our lives for your soul affection. I pray that you would bring to mind all the places where we get distracted and we get our aim dejected by a broken world and the counsel therein. I pray that we would trust solely on your word, its counsel, and as we come this morning about to observe the Lord's Supper in a moment for what you did for us, that we would not find our salvation in this ceremony, but we celebrate this ceremony from a place of salvation. I pray right now you would speak to your church and you convict us God, what needs to fall away this morning that is competing for you that you would be the thing we say yes to and everything else that we say no to would fall into that all category. We want to love you with our all as we respond to you right now in Jesus' name.